This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Science indeed. You know, we always enjoyed uh, the, the work of Danny Elfman, formerly of Oingo Boingo, here on this program. Anyone can do the, the theme song for The Simpsons. You know, he gets our vote of confidence. I think he also did the, the theme for the, uh, the, the, the short-lived show The Flash that was also a pretty good theme. But I digress. Let us segue from the tune Weird Science to note that we speak here on Radio Parallax, uh, of ourselves as a show about science and technology. And we are pretty often that, particularly when we bring on science authors or guests to talk up tech, etc. For most of today's program, we're going to take a look back at some of our favorite moments of discussing matters of science and technology. And what a better place to start than our chat with the longtime host of NPR's excellent program, Science Friday. Host Ira Flato had written a book titled Present at the Future, and he spoke with us about it. It was an enjoyable chat, and I'm surprised to note, Mr. Millen, that we've overlooked rebroadcasting that show, which first aired back in 2007. Fortunately, like all today's clips, that full segment is available online at radioparallax.com. And uh, I think we should be happy to add that Science Friday is still on the air, although Ira Flato now shares his hosting duties with some other contributors. Well, we got to talking to Ira uh, about something that we all do, sleep. In your book, your discussion on sleep was something I enjoyed quite a bit, having suffered through medical residency myself, where I was supposedly <laughs> trading off a sleep for learning at 4.30 a.m., which I thought was not a good trade. Uh, why we sleep at all has been a major biological mystery. It appears we're now unraveling it. You talk about that in the book. Well, we talk about sleep being a place to consolidate ideas. You know, it's still a very mysterious place uh, and what role sleep does take uh, at nighttime consolidating ideas, what do dreams mean, why do we dream. But there's some really interesting research, very solid research, done by a guy named Stickold at Harvard, I think is where he was. And uh, I, we, we followed his career over the years as he did this one very simple experiment. He took, he took his students, as you know, college students are usually guinea pigs for a lot of experiments in college. <laughs> And he had them play Tetris, you know, and he had them learn new and, new and different uh, skills. And he found that in learning these skills, if you didn't get seven hours of sleep at night, you never really cemented the skill. And it was really crucial that you get not six, not five. You had to get at least seven hours sleep at night. So if you wanted to learn how to play the piano better, you wanted to become better at Tetris or whatever, you had to get that sleep, and he would prove it by keeping people awake or get, allowing them to sleep at various, you know, rates. And I said to him, you know, I, I can't learn. I'm trying to learn a new instrument. I'm, I'm in my 50s. I'm trying to learn an instrument. I, you know, I said, I never get any. I don't, I don't get more than four or five hours of sleep a night. He says, bingo. 
that's why it's so hard for people, older people, to learn things. None, older people just don't get that kind of sleep anymore. And he says, you really need to sleep. It was, it was really eye-opening to me, so to speak, you know, that this was so instrumental in learning a new, uh, a new skill. If you want to learn it, get that sleep. Things yeah. are going on in your brain that consolidate and cement in that uh, hand-eye coordination that you need. Yeah, someone speculates in your book that some medical residents are physiologically asleep when they're prescribing medicines, and I want to know for the record, I, I, I'm certain that's true. <laughs> yeah, I've been in the emergency room myself where somebody's just woken up and examining me and they're still blinking his eyes. Yes, we, we've learned over the years that sometimes when you're, when you're pondering something, to sleep on it really does allow you to sort of reshuffle the deck, and, and ideas come the next day that you were sort of stuck on. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I know. It happens to me, you know. A, a lot of times uh, I can't sleep sometimes at night and I get up out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and sit down with a pad of paper. Wow, that problem I was trying to figure out is now crystal clear. And we also spoke a bit about a rather surprising quote which he included in his book, which comes from the legendary primatologist Jane Goodall. I, too, was startled about Jane Goodall uh, reading in Present at the Future. Uh, she made a statement that really just hit me between the eyes. She said that after the September 11th attacks... Traveling around, she found that Americans were reluctant to admit they cared about the environment as it might seem unpatriotic. Yeah. I, I thought that was startling, at the same time not, given how issues have been framed in the U.S. currently. Did that, did that shock you as well? Yeah, well, I think Europeans, you see, the Europeans are way ahead of us in the environment. And um, they, have, they, have a whole, they have green parties, they have much more, uh, they're much more ahead of us about controlling greenhouse gases. But I think that that may go along with the whole idea of if you're not American, you're unpatriotic. The whole French idea. Look how the whole French idea turns itself around now. Yeah. Um, it's, now, it's now patriotic to be French, thinking. Um, so uh, it, it is shocking, but, you know, it's a big world out there, and that's the, that's the problem of this ocean that we have on both sides of us. It, it saved us from a lot of destruction during two world wars, but it also has isolated us tremendously from other countries. People in other countries constantly mix around and, and talk to one another and see each other culturally. We're very isolated over here, and I, you know, hopefully the Internet will help out with that a little bit more, but uh, something we have to deal with. All right, for further interest, both, both those clips come from show number 274, which was in 2007. I'd like to be able to say that the Internet uh, certainly broadened people's outlooks, but, you know, it was just nine years after 2007, the Republican Party ran Donald Trump as a candidate, and social media played a key role in Trump's election. Ouch. Anyway, uh, another guest that we enjoyed was astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson. He, too, had written a book about the demotion of Pluto. Dr. Tyson thought it was a necessary step down and had explained his thinking in The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet. He talked about why he favored a downgrade of the so-called ninth planet. By the way, in 1800... There was a planet discovered called Ceres in 1801. You never you ever heard of planet Ceres? Probably not, because it's like a, it's an asteroid. <laughs> so <laughs> when it was first discovered, people said, wow, this is great. We found a planet orbiting between, between Mars and Jupiter. Everybody got excited. The textbooks all got adjusted. Then they found another planet there, and then another and another and another. So they found Ceres, Pallas, Vesta, and Juno. They all got their names, just like the rest of the planets. Everybody was excited. And then a few years later, they found another dozen, and then another 20. And they said, wait, something's going on here. They're all orbiting together in this swath. Maybe it's a different kind of object. In fact, they are now collectively known as the asteroids. 
So we think the Pluto story mirrors this story because we discover Pluto first and everybody's excited. Then we find out, you know, it's not as big as we thought it was. In fact, it's actually pretty small. There's seven moons in the solar system bigger than it. That's, that's kind of embarrassing if you're a planet. <laughs> and its, or, its orbit crosses the orbit of Neptune. Its orbit is tipped out of the plane of the solar system, mostly ice by volume. It would grow a tail if you brought it to where Earth is right now from the heat from the sun. So it was just an oddball. And so then you realize, discovered in the 90s, that there are other icy bodies out there in the outer solar system. And we realized that those icy bodies kind of behave like Pluto. So maybe Pluto has friends and family out there. And so what we did here in New York, in our exhibit, was present Pluto as a member of this new class of object. And that's what got us into trouble. And that was from show number 346, uh, during which time we also talked about a good guess made by astronomer Gerald Kuiper about what's out there and also pizza on Venus. I've always been, as an aside, sort of astounded by the fact that, uh, that Dr. Kuiper said, you know, there's got to be a, a belt of ice balls out there past Neptune, and, and, and by God, he was right. Yeah, I mean, good theorists have a good, have a good nose for what should or should not be so in the universe. And Gerard Kuiper, this is now 60 years ago, thought to himself, I don't see a large planet out there, yet the solar system is formed from the accretion of debris from the original gas cloud that made it. And if, it's no, if, if, there's, nothing to, if there's no source of high gravity to sort of vacuum up this debris, then this debris should still be out there. Why don't you look for it? And we needed the biggest telescope in the world to find it, and it took 40 years into the 1990s before the existence of what we now call the Kuiper Belt was established. And if you don't mind, Dr. Tyson, I want to just uh, mention another book you wrote I uh, like very much, Death by Black Hole and Other Cosmic uh, Quandaries. Uh, that came out two years ago, yeah. yeah. Yeah, thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, you, you had a great calculation in there that I just loved. You, you did the math on, it's noting that it's so hot on Venus that you could cook a pepperoni pizza in seven seconds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, well done. Just put it out on the windowsill. It'll cook in seven seconds, right. It also really makes me take my hat at those Soviet scientists that actually landed a probe and got some pictures on the surface. Holy mackerel. Well, yeah, it wasn't for very long, though. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a dangerous place to be for all of your equipment. By the way, if you want to know how you do that calculation, there's not only how much hotter Venus is than Earth, but there's also how much denser the atmosphere is. Uh-huh. Because the more molecules are in the atmosphere for any given sort of square inch, the more heat can be transmitted to the pizza for every square inch of, of cooking surface. So both of those factors combine to rapidly cook the pizza. And you have to cook a pizza because the pizza's thin enough to not burn it on the inside. So you, you can't cook a roast that way because you'll just singe the outside and the inside will still be raw or frozen. So you need something really thin. So pizza's the ideal food to test this on. It's more math than I can tackle, I'm afraid. Okay. But, uh... <laughs> and speaking of astronomers, we thoroughly enjoyed our chat with author James Connor, who'd written a book about the legendary Johannes Kepler, whose mother was once tried as a witch, by the way. A witch! A witch! She's a witch! What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt. I got better. Newton once said, if I've seen further than other men, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And without a doubt, one of the giants he was referring to had to have been Kepler. Well, oddly enough, Kepler was the man he wasn't referring to, but Kepler was the man he ought to have referred to. I would say three or four of the main ideas of Newton, 
the, the most important discoveries that Newton made, Kepler had laid the groundwork for that. But Newton was this terrible arch-egotist who couldn't stand the fact that he owed so much to this guy Kepler. Uh-huh. And um, uh, even his own friends said, hey, you're, you're short... You're, you're, uh, you're, you're shortchanging this guy Kepler. You need to pay more attention to him when you're, when you're giving, giving out your thanks to people. He just, he thought Galileo was great. I think one of the reasons everybody knows Galileo and few people know Kepler is that, is that Galileo, uh, not only because uh, Galileo fought with the Pope, which is always exciting, uh, <laughs> but he, uh, but, but Newton praised Galileo for years and, and, and never said a word about Kepler. What? That is interesting. Yeah, it, he, it, he didn't really owe that much to Galileo. But he owed right. a lot to Kepler, and right. I don't think he liked to. I don't think he liked to admit it. Um, Kepler was um, one of the four great founders of astronomy, uh, of modern science. He, there are the. Let's let's go through these, should we? Because uh, maybe I, there's I, five. I, I would say five. I, I'm guessing, and you know, my guessing, you're going to name Galileo, Copernicus, Newton, Kepler, and Tycho Brahe. Okay, perfect. Okay, those would be the five, the big five, and Kepler. Kepler was one of them. Kepler was the first real theoretician. Okay, the other four, probably least famous of, of those five, would be Tycho. Can you tell us a little bit about about him and how much Kepler owes him? Oh, uh, Kepler owes him uh, a lot, and he and he and he uh, said so too. Uh, he was Kepler's boss, his mentor. He was probably the greatest observer, scientific observer, in at that time. He's been called the last the last great pre-telescope astronomer. That's right. Yes. And he had uh, he was a Danish nobleman, and he had his own island. Can you can you believe that? That was it was given to him by the king, and he set up an observatory on this island and made all kinds of things. Of course, the the local people hated him because he made them work so much. So they boot you know so so then the new king came in and then said I don't like you anymore. So he booted Tycho Brahe out of there, and Tycho ended up being the um, uh, ended up being the emperor's mathematician in Prague, which was uh, the the Habsburg emperor, the great. This was um, the, the last parts of what you would used to call the Holy Roman Empire. And so he, he had probably the biggest science job in the world at the time. Yeah. And, um, and he brought Kepler on as his assistant. And Kepler worked with him for a year, and then Tycho um, rather unfortunately died. And so there's, there's uh, uh, Kepler with this mountain of Tycho's um, uh, discoveries. And uh, he uh, uh, is sitting there, and he uses them to formulate, to prove Copernicus, and to uh, formulate the three great planet laws that we remember him for. And that was from show number 103, the early days. And I'm sorry to note that uh, that very enjoyable chat has not re-aired on Parallax since we broadcasted back in 2004. So, again, we advise you to use our archives at radioparallax.com to hear it in full. Sam Keane is a fine science writer. We were lucky to have him on our show to talk about three of his very entertaining and informative books. His first appearance was to discuss his book, The Disappearing Spoon and Other Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. And we got right to it with him. Mr. Keene, the periodic table sits at the back of chemistry classes and reveals so much about the world of chemistry and physics at one glance, if, if those are in the know. But for, for the people out there who ignored it in school, why is it such a remarkable summary of data? Um, yeah, as you said, you know, everyone kind of remembers it from high <laughs> school, but uh, not everyone remembers it fondly all the time. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable collection of data because you can look at it 
at a glance and understand how the elements, how the, the boxes, the individual elements on the boxes will react with each other. And you can tell their properties just by looking at it because elements in the same vertical column on the table have very similar properties. So it's just a clever way of organizing matter and keeping track of it that scientists can use, uh, as you said, to summarize a lot of information very quickly. Well, one fascinating aspect about the tail is that it, it, it does give people general rules that indicate how chemistry will go. But a lot of times in science, we learn a lot from the exceptions to those rules, and, and I, you made some note of that in the book about some of the oddities. Uh, uh, you mentioned specifically bismuth, which I took recently uh, with some Pepto-Bismol when I had an upset stomach. It's a medicine, yet it's surrounded on the periodic table by deadly poisons. Yeah, it is. It's probably one of the more misplaced elements on the table. If you look at the little corridor where bismuth sits. It's right next to lead, uh, polonium. It's in the same column, actually, <laughs> as arsenic is, and uh, a little beyond it are, are radon, some other radioactive poisons. But as you said, bismuth itself is completely benign. Uh, it's in Pepto-Bismol, and it's used in other cases to uh, kind of clear the body of poisons. So it's really unusual that this single element uh, for various reasons, uh, would suddenly appear down in Poisoner's Corridor, down there in the corner. <laughs> well, in, in researching the various elements, uh, as you did for the book, what, what facts surprise you the most, and, and what do you think uh, comes as the biggest surprise to your audience? The one story that really surprised me was the story of aluminum, just because it's an element that we're all very familiar with, that we all know from day-to-day -day use. But it really had an unusual backstory that uh, I didn't anticipate at first. Um, for a long time in the 1800s, aluminum was actually the most precious metal on Earth. It was worth far more than gold. It was worth far more than silver. And the reason why is that even though aluminum is very common in the Earth's crust, the most common metal, actually, it's always very tightly bonded to something in the crust, usually oxygen. So it's very hard to separate and get pure samples of it. And when scientists started to get pure samples, they were considered sort of miraculous. It's a very light metal, also very strong and attractive, though. Uh, and it became sort of a status symbol to have aluminum. Uh, the French actually used to keep these uh, Fort Knox-like bars of <laughs> aluminum and display them next to their crown jewels. And the Emperor Napoleon III... Uh, actually had a prized set of aluminum cutlery that he reserved for his most favored guests <laughs> at banquets, and the lesser nobility had to eat with gold knives and forks. <laughs> and even the U.S. got into the game a little. The Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., down in the National Mall, uh, there's a six-inch pyramid of aluminum on the very top of it. And the idea was, in the 1880s when it went up, uh, the U.S. was kind of bragging a little, and we were saying we are such a, an up-and-coming industrial power that we can afford to put aluminum on our public monuments. <laughs> and I really thought that was a great story because, first of all, it was so unexpected, but it also shows how the, uh, the fortunes of the elements rise and fall over time, and what's a very popular element in one time you know, in our day, has become sort of passe, something that's in pop cans and Little League baseball bats. So it was kind of a fun twist for an element that we all thought we knew so well. 
All right, that was show 468. Uh, Sam Keen covered the periodic table pretty well, we thought, but um, we really couldn't resist citing the work of Tom Lear at this point. Uh, well, not at, at this point right now, actually, who is an American treasure. I believe at the, at the moment he's Professor of Mathematics Emeritus at UC Santa Cruz. Back in the day, meaning like the 60s, Tom Lear produced three dozen or so whimsical tunes and got him on network TV, and here's one of our favorites... arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, aboard, and gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I knew you would. I hope you're all taking notes because there's going to be a short quiz next period. <laughs> there's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercury and lithium and magnesium and sprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum, plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium, and tantalum, tenesium, titanium, tellurium, and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and arc, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. And you'll find that Tom Lear segment on show 649. Sam Keen later returned to the program to talk about another of his great books, The Violinist's Thumb and other lost tales of love, war, and genius as written by our genetic code. Yes, he certainly does have a thing for long book titles, doesn't he? We talked with Sam about the great biologist Lynn Margulis, who proposed that complex organisms came about by a fusion of primitive cells, where instead of one digesting the other, a partnership got worked out. Uh, The idea was that way back long ago, when only bacteria lived on the planet, um, there was maybe a very large bacteria one day that tried to swallow a smaller one. It tried to engulf and eat it. Or maybe a small bacteria invaded a larger one. But something happened, uh, and the little bug ended up inside the bigger bug. And for some reason, there was kind of a stalemate. They just, uh, either one couldn't eat the other, or the one couldn't attack the larger one. And they ended up just kind of coexisting with each other. It was probably kind of an uneasy coexistence at first. But over time, they began to specialize a little bit. Uh, Again, the smaller one began to produce power for the cell. The bigger one could offer uh, safety. It could bring in more nutrients and food. And they ended up dividing the labor between them. It was sort of... uh, sort of like the uh, kind of an Adam Smith-ish kind of thing, where if you divide the labor, each one gets better at its specific job. And Margulis believed that over time, over a long period of time, this eventually led to what we call the mitochondria today. 
And it was a really revolutionary theory. She turned out to be right about it. But when she tried to propose this theory, uh, she ran into a lot of opposition for it. Uh, Scientists really actually kind of hated this theory and really gave her a hard time for it. And, you know, that's not uncommon. That happens in science a lot of time, and different people react to it uh, in different ways. Uh, some people kind of shrink, and they never go back and fight it. Margulis was not like that. Margulis was a fighter, and she really came out swinging after people. And eventually, she proved herself correct, and now uh, it's considered a really fundamental step in evolution, um, from in the evolution from simple bacteria to the more complicated bacteria and eventually to multi-celled creatures. It was really, really an important step, and Margulis was the one who figured all that out. Well, Margulis has another idea I'd like to just briefly go out on a limb with you on, is that sure. she's believed that uh, genes may leap species to species, and that may have a lot more to do than, with evolution than we'd previously thought. Uh, most people still don't believe that's the case, but as, as we go along, we are finding that genes do tend to go from one species to another. So what do you think the odds are she might be proven right in the long run? It's a bit of a controversial question. It's kind of an old um, dilemma in biology, and it actually goes back to what we were talking about a little bit before, uh, about the eclipse of Darwinism. Again, it was the idea some people, like Darwin, think evolution happened very slowly, Other people like to think about evolution happening in leaps. They like to think of jumps. And Margulis was one of the people who believed in jumps. And she believed that uh, species could sometimes exchange DNA. There was more of a free flow of DNA, kind of uh, horizontal instead of just vertical, the way we think about it, from parent to child. And she's definitely been proven right in some situations. For instance, in humans even, uh, we got one of the more important genes that makes up the placenta, uh, the, th- the interface between a mother and her child. Uh, one very important part of the placenta, the part that helps it fuse to the uterus wall, actually comes from a virus. Viruses are very good at fusing with cell walls, and we kind of stole this gene from viruses, mammals did, and we still use it today, and it's one of the hallmarks of mammals now is the fact that most mammals use the placenta. So in this case, Margulis was definitely proven right. The genes can flow uh, sort of sideways between species. It remains to be seen whether they can bring about the kind of large-scale changes that Margulis uh, thought they would. Um, she was talking about, you know, brand new species arriving in possibly a single generation or something like that. Uh-huh. She was really into the idea of big jumps, and that's that's still a more controversial uh, idea, and it's a little bit on the fringe, but it's an exciting one, and it's something that could actually help explain uh, kind of the incredible diversity of life that we see today and in the fossil record. All right, that was from show 527. We were speaking uh, about science and tech, at least we were, in, uh, in our collection here of a lot of different uh, guests we've had on the program. But we need to take a short break at this point, so let's do so. This is Radio Parallax, and I am Douglas Everett. 